As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everybody. Whether you are uh, watching live on Facebook or listening on the Sportsman Drag Racing uh, podcast feed, welcome to or welcome back. And uh, today we got a little bit different format. As you know, if you've been following along, um, we've been trying to, to ramp up content in general during this you know, shelter-in-place period. And uh, we've got a new um, feature today. We've been trying to go live uh, three days a week, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday at noon Eastern time each day. And um, we've been kind of tinkering with formats and trying new ideas. And I've, we've got what I think is a really cool idea today. It's either going to be like a huge hit or just a complete failure. I don't, I don't know if there's anything in between, but I'm excited about this and especially excited um, for the man that I've got joining me. Most of you probably recognize Mr. Kevin McKenna. He is a senior editor at National Dragster, has been for a long time. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity to do this, but it's not going to be a complete failure. What, what, what have you ever done anything that was a complete failure? Come on. I got a list. I got a list. Uh, it's, it's, I bet it's very short. <laughs> no, I thought like this, this idea I think is really cool. And the way that we're going about it, especially with your assistance and just the, 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 knowledge, the experience, and the research that you bring to the table, I, I think elevates this a ton. So our thought process here is throwback Thursday, right? So the idea is to go back in time, at least a decade, and select a specific year from the past. And we'll kind of do some things to, to bring you up to date in terms of putting us back in that place in time. But obviously the, the main topic of discussion here is to go back and kind of review that year in sportsman drag racing. And this is the first of its kind, so obviously there'll be some, some, some iteration along the way, but I'm pretty fired up about this. Today, we're gonna talk about 2005. So, K-Mac, I'll let you start off, see if you can just kind of set the scene. Take us back to 2005 in general. No, why did we pick 2005? I'm not totally sure. It just seemed like, <laughs> it seemed like a convenient year that we were both active. Uh, 
we're not going too far back where you're talking ancient history, although we were just remarking 15 years, a, a, a long time. Um, if you want to set the stage as far as drag racing culture in general, 2005, really some, uh, a, a good, a good year. You know, it was before the real estate crash in 2007, 2008. So I think the whole country and drag racing more specifically was rolling. You know, I think you, you great car counts, uh, really, it was kind of a high water mark for the sport, so that's not a bad place for us to start. And I also think it's not so far back that younger people wouldn't wouldn't really remember some of the names and faces and things. So with that, we we can kind of dive into this. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm ex I think it's a good place to start. And who knows? As we'll bounce around, maybe we'll just kind of go in chronological order. Maybe we'll bounce around a bunch. But I, I sure. like the idea of starting in '05, just because there were some really notable things in sports and drag racing in general, um, some cool stories, which you could probably find every year, but I think there's some standout stuff from this year in particular. And just as a, a kind of an aside and an overview, to take us back in time, 2005, that's um, uh, George W. Bush sworn in for his second term in office. Um, the Probably the, the overreaching story and tragedy of the year was Hurricane Katrina. Katrina. Uh, which hit the Gulf Coast in August, I believe. Um, was, I, I can tell you it was U.S. Nationals week okay. because you had the Louisiana racers, people like, uh, you know, Angel Sampei, the Tonglets, people, you know, the, anyone that lived in the Gulf Coast were sitting at Indy, very worried about what was happening, uh, you know, down there at home and, you know, whether or not they'd have anything even to go back to. Uh, that, that, those were trying times for, for the country as a whole, but those people more specifically. Sure. Yeah. Um, also in, uh, in 2005, as a result, I think late in the year, largely due to Katrina, we had skyrocketing gas prices, really, I think for the first time in my life, like I remember, I remember paying 99 cents for diesel when I started <laughs> traveling and that's like 99 traveling racing. Um, and it, I think it escalated somewhat, but it seemed like over that time, like it just skyrocketed to, three, four dollars a gallon, you know? Yeah, well, what I remember from that was uh, in, in, in the wake of Katrina, September, uh, us going, you know, the next event going to ZMAX. And I believe when we flew in on Wednesday or Thursday, it might have been you know, $2.59 a gallon, whatever whatever the price was. And, and it had shot up a, a dollar or more. And it just seemed like the prices would never come down. And, and it's so ironic to look at today, you've actually got gas prices for an entirely different reason, you know, below a dollar, something none of us ever thought we'd see. Uh -huh. And also never thought you would want to have that happen. Um, <laughs> just kind of a, an indicator of the strange times we're living in. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It is interesting to bring that around full circle today. Um, a couple other news and notes from 2005. I think it's the first time that we started I don't want to say it's, we started to realize, but maybe it got hammered home from the majority that it's Michael Jackson character. He's a little off, right? 2005 yeah. is actually the year that he got acquitted of the child molestation charges. But that whole trial, from what I can remember, like it just it, it sent off alarm bells. We're like, this dude's probably not who we always thought he was. Right. So that was yeah. interesting. And I think what was shocking to me going back through like the, the news and events, the pop culture of 2005 is it was so illuminating, and I don't know that it's completely um, unique to me, because at 2005, I'd have been, what, 24 years old? 
I was, I so lived in my own little bubble and it was racing and that was all that mattered. Like in terms of, I don't even remember most of this stuff. Like I didn't watch the news. I wasn't dialed into any of this. You know? Right. You try, I, I tried to live in the same bubble, but at the same time, living in Southern California, mm-hmm. you couldn't escape that, you know, a decade earlier, it was the OJ trial that took over every day. Uh, you know, I, I know those freeways. I know the area. And, and kind of the same thing with, with Michael Jackson, especially, you know, years later when he died, that house being right off Sunset Boulevard, I, I could have shown you where it was. And I can remember driving by there and seeing the people lined up on the sidewalk. And, and just it's, you know, California is a totally different place from most of the rest of the country. Sure. And, and, and when things like that happen, it, it only underscores that. Um, sports in 2005, San Antonio Spurs won their third NBA championship in seven years. It was actually a seven game series with Detroit. So it went right down to the wire. Tim Duncan was your finals MVP, Steve Nash, regular season MVP, uh, on the hardwood in college, North Carolina won the NCAA championship, uh, over Illinois. And, uh, it was actually, it was Roy Williams first championship. Roy's, Roy's first championship, obviously his first at North Carolina after a couple of near misses in Kansas. Um, golf was all Tiger Woods. And I remember that growing up more than anything. And it was actually probably set in stone a little bit earlier for me. It was Tiger Woods and golf. It was Jeff Gordon and NASCAR. And for whatever reason, I guess because they were so dominant, like I, I, I clung to both of those guys. And real early on in my career, we're talking like late 90s, it seemed like when Tiger won and Gordon won, I won wherever I was racing. So it was a thing, like it was a trio. Not that I would ever put myself on that pedestal, but there was, there was a, uh, uh, a kinsmanship that I felt there. You know what I mean? Like, all right, they, they, they rolled through that. Like it's my time, right? Absolutely. You know, and you, you also have on there uh, to kind of pick that up, uh, you know, the NHL season canceled for the labor dispute, which was heartbreaking for any hockey fan, but especially me, because being a huge Tampa Bay Lightning fan, they were just coming off the cup with probably a chance to defend it and never got a chance to play a game. And, uh, I mean, obviously they've been playing the, the next 15 years to try to get back there. Sure. Uh, that was horrible. Uh, I also see on here we have Super Bowl. You know, New England Patriots uh, over Philadelphia. Uh, that was, you know, a harbinger of things to come with how dominant the Patriots would be. Right? That was their second straight. Yeah. Uh, so we were just beginning to see the, the, the greatness that was, that was Tom Brady and, and the rest of that cast. Yeah, and in, uh, in baseball, it was the White Sox that swept the Astros to win their first World Series since 1917. So that's you know, nearly, nearly a century. And I thought it was interesting, too, because what I, don't, I didn't really dig up the research on this looking at, at NASCAR from that year. Tony Stewart won the NASCAR Nextel Cup Championship. And that's the first year that I remember of the, the playoff. Like, that's the one that stands out to me because it was, I think there was like 10 drivers that had a mathematical chance to win at the last race. And right, right. you start to really get the, the drama of the playoff. Where, I know that the NHRA professional classes didn't have the countdown at that point, but it wasn't too far removed from that that it started. Do you remember the year that that got going? Oh, seven, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So as I, and I almost feel like this was a catalyst for it. Just that excitement around that, that NASCAR. I, I, I think so. I mean, I always hate that people just assume that there's a follow the leader mentality there. Sure. But when you do look at some of the years where you've had NHRA championships wrapped up three or four races before the end of the season, there's no drama in that. That's not going to bring fans out. 
And whether or not you like the countdown, and, and we could debate this from now till the end of history, uh, you cannot argue that it hasn't made the last two or three events of the season meaningful, exciting. You know, we've had some phenomenal points battles that go right down to sometimes the last round of the last race of the season. So, yeah, for, for that reason, I think we, we looked at what NASCAR had done and, and, and said, yeah, we, we need a similar system for this. And, you know, again, we could debate it forever, but by and large, I think it's worked. Yeah, no, I mean, just take the close of 2019 as an example. Like, I, I was glued to the television watching the live coverage from Pomona because mm -hmm. there was drama and engagement in every category. And you yeah. just, you don't have that on a season-long trace. No, you, you, you'll probably, you may never see anything again like the, the Pro Stock Motorcycle. Mm -hmm. the, the ending to last season that we had where it went back and forth that you had, you know, going into the last two rounds, you know, in the semifinals, there were still three people who could have won it. And, you know, for the way that all to be played out, just, you can't, you can't deny that that's exciting, whether or not you like the countdown or not. Agreed. Agreed. Um, just again, taking us back in time to 2005, this rings a little bit more true to me. Mariah Carey topped the Billboard charts with We Belong Together. In country, it was Craig Morgan and What I Love About Sunday. That actually became a mantra, at least for my group in the racing community. If we'd win on Sunday, that's, that's what I love about Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the Foo Fighters, The Best of You, one of the all-time classics, topped the, uh, the rock charts back in 2005 movies uh star wars episode three i'm not a huge star wars junkie mm -hmm. i don't know exactly where that fell in the in the pantheon of, of star wars it, it seems like around that time it would just be the beginning of the 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 newer version but you're talking to the wrong guy there it looks like, I, it looks I, like same with you that's not my field of expertise either i when i was a kid i saw the original star wars movies right I haven't seen much of it since um walk the line stood out to me that's uh joaquin phoenix and uh Oh, who played uh, who played Mrs. Cash? Is it Reese Witherspoon? I remember watching that in the theaters, and it was awesome. Mm -hmm. So I would, that, that that's a rewatchable for me. What uh, you mentioned, you know, in uh, in California in that time, Kevin, if you can think back, where were you at? What were you doing personally in twenty in two thousand five? What did your life look like? Uh, let's see. I, I had lived in California at that point, almost. Well, it, it had been ten years. I moved there in ninety four, so pretty much settled in. Obviously, doing. Uh, well, probably at that point, 15 or so national events. So there was quite a bit of traveling. Um, the, the one thing I did do that year, which was totally as far away from drag racing as you can get, took a trip to Europe, went to the 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, it was just something I always wanted to do. Always kind of had a fascination with sports cars and endurance racing. And it was, it was life-changing. It was really an amazing event. And even if that's not your thing, it, it is well, it was actually voted by National Geographic as the number one sporting event in the world. Um, and, and I can see why, you know, you're talking 250,000 people. And just as someone who really likes to experience different cultures, to go to France, to see Paris, uh, that was amazing. And I also remember it was the week, traditionally, I would go to Englishtown that week and I passed on Englishtown. And I remember making phone calls and things back and forth in the middle of the night to find out what was going on in Englishtown, who was doing what. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting time. How often have you been back since? Uh, I've been back once uh, to, to Paris two or three times, but one more time, um, I took my wife there in 2015. We also went and um, I really hope to go again soon because it's, uh, it is an amazing thing to see. It, it's so much different. You look at drag racing where 
you know, even a full day's event is maybe eight hours. And I can remember being two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, walking around Lamont and thinking, this race isn't even half over. We've been at this for 11 hours. And, 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 and we did, uh, the two times that I've been, we endeavored to stay up all night. Uh, you maybe take a nap for a couple hours, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that's so captivating. You, you don't really want to waste it by, by, by sleeping. Like Warren Johnson says, sleep's overrated. You sleep when you die. That, that was kind of the mentality we took into that. And you pay the price later, but it's worth it. Absolutely. It sounds like an awesome experience. I've never, outside of like, you know, um, uh, resort vacations, I've never really been outside of North America, at least. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's on the bucket list for me as well. It is. I, I love Europe. I've been probably a half dozen times. Oh, wow. made, a, made a couple trips to Sweden, gone to Tierp Arena for, for, you know, their drag racing round. That, that's maybe one of the nicest tracks in the world. And uh, it, their, their events are definitely comparable to an NHRA national event as far as spectator attendance, car counts. They're conducted professionally. Uh, anyone, you know, once we get through this mess, when people are ready to start traveling internationally, th- those are things I would recommend to anyone because they, they really are incredible life-changing experiences yeah when i think back to 2005 like it was a it was a bit of a transformative year for me personally i i graduated college in 2003 in in texas uh and then almost immediately moved to huntsville alabama and took a job working at huntsville engine in which part of my job was to to go racing right and and represent them and uh in 2005 just two years later is when i left huntsville engine to kind of chase down that entrepreneurial spirit spirit and in 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 hindsight i had no idea what the hell i was doing right and uh i guess ultimately it worked out but there was some really lean times in there and i uh i had built a new dragster i guess that off season 04 into 05 and then ended up selling the two dragsters that i had at the time like i guess one didn't sell initially i sold them both within like a week basically to to fund my little business which at the time wasn't even this is bracket racing it was like a, a marketing gig you know helping racers with uh, sponsorships and press releases and things along those lines and uh just that year was different because i had my little vega and i was racing it a fair amount and uh, just kind of trying to get my footing and figure out where to go and it was at the end of that season i uh, i got another dragster and that's a whole <laughs> different story with uh, with Mark Horton. I, I, they had just started American Race Cars, and I was doing some work for them on the on the promotional side. And Mark would, hey man, whenever you're ready for another dragster, just let me know. Just let me know. Just let me know. And I'm like, all right, yeah. Well, you know, I, I like struggling to pay the electric bill, so that doesn't seem like a <laughs> a big thing right now. And uh, and then whatever. It's it's later in the year. It's September, October. And he's like, are you ready for a dragster yet? I'm like, look, man, I, I'm not in a position to do that. He said, I didn't ask you if you could afford a dragster. I asked if you were ready for a dragster. And he basically built me a car and turned me loose in it. I mean, it was wow. his car and nobody really sure. knew that at the time. But that's without thing. And so many things like that have come up over the course of my career. Like without that stuff, you never have the opportunities that you've had. And it's just interesting to look back now and see that those not that that one was a big thing at the time, but just how things kind of fall into place, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, and that was in between that, the, that brief period of time when I was just running the Vega, I really started somehow or another, we had raced together and knew each other, but I really got close with Jason Lynch over that time. And he, uh, he put me in a car for a couple of months and, and 
whatever, just kind of the, the platform or the foundation of a friendship that's lasted ever since. And he did a lot for me too. actually got some stories related to that, that I think we'll get into as we get to talking about actual race stuff. That'll be a little bit fun, but yeah, interesting year when you, when you look back on it now with the, uh, the perspective of, of hindsight, like it's a lot that happened, you know, yes, on a personal absolutely. level. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so take me through the the NHRA pro ranks, and you had you had added some stuff to our document here that I thought was just kind of fascinating and fun to look mm -hmm. back on. Absolutely, I mean, re really quickly, your pro champs, Tony Schumacher. You know, the, the middle of his dominance with the Army car and Alan Johnson. You know, he won nine races, but really, you know, he won the last five. So you know, any sort of doubts or anything, he, you know, pretty much buried that. Uh, Gary Selzy one funny car championship uh greg anderson eight pro stock wins cruises to I believe would have been his second championship out of the four he's won okay and then andrew hines won the pro stock motorcycle championship on the harley um you know also i mean he won two events but pretty dominant performance where he was you know semis are better at almost every event uh, but we also did have some some very interesting things that came out of that season uh one that really was headlines for, for probably a month or more, the Pro Stock Motorcycle Final at Indy, Matt Smith and Steve, jo Steve Johnson. You know, the wind light comes on in Matt Smith's lane, but when you look at the video, clearly Steve Johnson is at least a tire length, maybe more ahead. And it took a day. I mean, it wasn't officially overturned till the next day when they looked at the, the review and, and just, to, you know, it's impossible. You know, Steve Johnson's bike was ahead. And, you know, back then the bikes weren't required to have a disc in the wheel. So pretty conceivable that the bike hopped the beam and, and mm. something else triggered it. But again, when you look at the video and you analyze the numbers, it was pretty obvious what happened there. But that was a pretty major controversy. Um, was that the same year that Scotty Richardson and Jason Cohn were in the comp final and there was a bunch of debate? Because it looked like from the camera angle that Scotty was ahead, like, but it was really close. Yeah, that's. I, I remember that being a controversy, but I don't remember if it was the exact same year. I don't remember the year either. I'd have to look it up, but but I, I do remember that uh, that episode. Um, another thing you had, uh, so, sort of the first indicator of things to come. Erica Enders makes her first pro stock final. Mm -hmm. um, she she lost to Jason Line, but obviously in in the fifteen years since then, um, you know she's built pretty much a Hall of Fame resume with. Uh, three championships and oh, 25, 26 wins, I believe. Um, so that, that was the, the first hint of, of what was to come there. Yeah, because uh, that wasn't just a pure upward trajectory. Like there was lean times after 2005. Right. I mean, if you, right, if you remember her, her, right, her car, you know, she started out in, you know, the Cunningham car, Mustang, you know, it took her a while to get a competitive ride. I, I think the, the talent was always there, but sure. in, until she finally got a car that was, uh, comparable to her, her ability, um, you know, you're obviously not going to see the results. Uh, we also know another pro stock deal in Dallas, one of the scariest incidents oh. anyone of us have ever seen, the Bruce Allen, Kenny Koretsky uh, two-car accident where, you know, Bruce lost control and, and right in front of Koretsky's car, T-boned, and uh, it's miraculous that they both survived, although it was the end of Bruce Allen's driving career. He never drove again after that. No, he did not. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that and, you know, you talk to a guy like Kenny Koretsky and he, he still has, you know, he, he did come back to race, but uh, there, there's still a little lingering damage there. I mean, he'll, he'll tell you 
you wake up in the morning, you still feel the after effects of that. But, you know, again, that, that was just one of the most frightening things I think any of us have ever seen on a drag strip. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, the funny car points meet or full points battle uh, came down. It was on eight points between Gary Selzy and Ron Caps. You know, and, and poor Ron Caps. You know, it took him another decade to finally win his championship, and and he's come close. You know, I don't know how many second place finishes he has. Probably a half dozen or more, I would think. Um, you know, you uh, so some other minor things we looked up. Uh, Kurt Johnson got a single in the Seattle. Pro Stock Final. Mm. Ron Krischer had won the semis but crashed, couldn't come back. Fortunately, he wasn't hurt. But again, there was a single there in the final. You know, and that doesn't happen very often. That, that's right. kind of a an odd situation. Um, the Bullet Motorsports team with Dave Connolly were doing very well, and then just all of a sudden, maybe a third of the way into the season, just dissolved. And uh, of course, Dave became quickly one of the most coveted free agents, and uh, you know, went on to have a pretty good career. That you know his now morphed into a crew chief position where he's still, you know, a very sought after guy. Uh, and then finally more pro stock news, Warren Johnson announced the school's out tour, but it went on for the better part of a decade. Uh, yeah, I, I think Warren had designs of retiring and just, I think when push came to shove, just couldn't pull the trigger. Uh, you know, I, I think he just loved what he was doing. And for, you know, the next few years, he was still competitive and, you know, I know he, he sort of raced on his own nickel for a while, something he said he'd never do. But, uh, you know, when I think when you still feel like you have something to offer, mm -hmm. why not, you know, stay out there and, and give it your best? And I think it was what his last win came in 2010. So so obviously he still had five more years left in him. Right. And that, if, I've, if memory serves, that was actually here at Gateway. I think I was there. It, it was because that was a memorable final where, quite frankly, he was not competitive. And right basically got four gifts and Jeg Coughlin broke a rear end in the final. And that, that would have been Jeg's first double because he'd already driven his brother's car to the top dragster win. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so he was, he was in line for a double. He probably had Warren covered by the better part of a 10th. So the only way he loses that final is to break. And, and sure enough, I believe he dumped the clutch and the car moved five feet and, um, yeah, that's, I think if you were to ask Jake, is there one that you'd like a do-over on? That would probably be it. Mm, right. The uh, yeah. So the the schools out tour had a had a had a graduate campaign after that. Right? It, it did. It had, a, it had. There was a lengthy detention involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I'll, I'll let you run through the, the NHRA Sportsman Champions, mm -hmm. uh, World Champions from that season, because some of these stood out to me as if it was yesterday, and some of them, like, I had completely forgot that these seasons even happened. So I, sure. I think it's fun to go back through this. Sure. You start with Steve Torrance and Top Alcohol Dragster. That's a lot what, of people, yeah. what he's done in Top Fuel the last two, three years, I think a lot of people don't even realize that prior to that, um, you know, they had an A-Fuel Dragster, very successful Won a lot of races over a couple of years. And 2005 was the year they put it together and won the championship. Also in the alcohol racing, Bob Newberry, one of his, I believe, two alcohol championships, which that's notable only because that was one of the brief interruptions in Frank Manzo's two decades of dominance. That's what I was going to say, because you look back on Newberry's career, and obviously it's like a Hall of Fame type career, but it's almost mm -hmm. like he was Scotty Pippen to Manzo's Jordan, you know, I mean, so overshadowed for so many years. Absolutely. And, and I'm not really sure. I mean, I'd have to look deeper and to see what, how close it was, what Frank did that year. Here's a guy who rarely ever slumped, but he's always acknowledged that 
Bob Newberry was probably the one guy that gave him the most trouble. Um, so yeah, uh, Bob won that in comp. You had Jeff Taylor. He had already won a stock championship in 81, a super stock championship in I believe 88 and uh, comes out and, and completes the trifecta with, um, uh, with a, with a championship in comp. Um, you know, and, and again, he's, you know, here's a guy who's almost on the verge now of 50 wins. So he, he's had uh, also a hall of fame career. And then there's the uh, the elephant in the room, if you will, the Superstock champion. Or, well, actually, Superstock champion was Hugh Meeks. But move, let's move on to Peter sure. Biondo's season. You know, you and I have dissected this a million ways to Sunday. But not only did Peter win the championship, but 792 points, unheard of. You you may never see it again. Basically, two rounds from a perfect season. One Indy that year. Ran just could, could could not be beat. Yeah, I mean, we dissected that to some extent on the on the the audio version of the podcast what a, a week and a half ago. But yeah, Peter's year, you get to claim eight events, right? Uh, five divisional, three national, three points total. Peter's uh, tally at the end of the season had seven wins and a semifinal. Is that accurate? I believe quarterfinal. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was either semi or quarter. Mm -hmm. But, but he also had wins that didn't count. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just, I mean, to me that, you know, when you think, uh, you know, what, what would the 840, I guess, would have been the, uh, the maximum score possible. And to go 792, that's just that's insane. You know, when you think most racers, if you told them at the beginning of the year, I will gift you. 630 to 650 points. Most of them would sign off sign on the dotted line yes. every year without exception. And a lot of years that would be more than enough to win a championship. And to think if, if you had 650 points that year, you were so far behind, you probably never had hope. You're 14 rounds back. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the highest score in sportsman racing history. And what I thought was interesting about that when we'd done some research at one point in the past, I think Peter owns, is it the three highest scores of all time? He, he does. He had a 734 point season, maybe a 750. And, and, and most, you know, even most of the other great seasons, you know, we did have a list going of everyone who has 700 points and there's about 20, 20 seasons of that, but most of them are 705, 710. And, and those are outstanding campaigns where almost nothing has gone wrong. You won a lot of races, you dominated, you were rarely challenged. I mean, th these were years where, Drivers wrapped up championships in late September, early October. You, you know those championships you generally don't sweat at the finals. Um, but 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 again, Pete, you know no one has ever scored 700 points and not won a championship. And here's a guy with 792. Uh, yeah, and I mean that's just nuts. And it's just, I, I guess, kind of speaks to the dominance. You don't think about how incredible that season was like I knew we appreciated it in the time but I feel like it kind of gets lost in the in the vacuum of history and I go back and think like even even because I think back to whatever this season was uh, that Cohen won the first super comp championship 1987 87 yeah that seemed completely dominant and that's it's not I know that the point system was a little bit different but it, it, it was, but basically, I mean, Cohen had 7,400 and some odd sure. points, mm -hmm. which would be the equivalent of 740. Right. And, and, you know, he also, much like Pete, came within 
a race or two of having a perfect season. You know, he won his three national events that were claimed. Won, I, I believe he won four points meets overall. But that's still, you know, if if he'd been competing in the same class as Pete, he'd have a nice big number two on his car the following year. It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, so cool. I, and I do want to circle back too, because obviously Pete's season is the story of the year. I think in sports sure. racing, without question, if not. You know, maybe the story of the decade. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was obviously in, in consideration and discussion for the best season of all time when we had that debate a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I want to circle back to, to Hughes' mm-hmm. uh, yes. unique uh, Superstock Championship because for a couple of reasons. Number one, when I think the name Hughes and Hughes the third out of Alabama, I think I'm like most, and I think of Hugh as a bracket racer. Mm-hmm. as a superclass racer more uh, accomplished in a dragster like i don't even remember like how freaking good he is on the bottom bulb and he hopped in super stock i think might have gotten that car like mid-season the season prior and dabbled mm-hmm. in it a little bit yeah and then yeah. he went out and won this championship and it was i guess how championships typically get won like he started the season with no intentions of chasing it mm-hmm. but even midway through i don't think he had any intentions of chasing it i don't know exactly where it ended up but i think he went you, know, you get to claim points at three national events five divisionals but you can go to six and eight to get your mm-hmm. best three and five and if if memory serves i think he went to like one national event beyond the minimum and one points meet beyond the minimum like he didn't even go to all the right. races and won right. pretty easily yeah i think it- if memory serves, I, I think it was one of those cases where you, you kind of wake up maybe in August and you look at the points and you think, wow, I have a shot to do this. But but you know, he, yeah, he was not a guy who habitually traveled. You wouldn't see him all over the country. So I think going forward, you map out your strategy and it's like, well, okay, I can hit a race here, a race here that's close. And, and, and yeah, I'm not going to make the, the, the six and eight, but if everything goes well, and my memory of that year was him at the end of the season going to the banquet. And I think here's, you know, I, I see this a lot with people all over the country, but here's this kid from Alabama, pretty overwhelmed. You know, he's in Hollywood. He's at the banquet wearing a tuxedo. And I think for a lot of people that win a championship, that's not a situation they ever thought they'd see themselves in, but it's really, that, that's one of the cool things about the banquet. If, if anyone ever has a chance to go, if you're not from California, if you don't know it, you're on Hollywood Boulevard and you look down and there's all the stars and it, it really is a, a, a pretty special event. And, and I do remember kind of this wide eyed kid. Being, wow. I, you know, I've made it. Right. Yeah, no, it is. It's a surreal experience without question. The, uh, so Hugh gets it in super stock. Peter has the, the season of seasons in stock eliminator. Gary Stinnett wins the super comp championship in 2005, mm-hmm. which I believe at that time was his second. Uh, I know he has four total. Um, they won back to back in ten and eleven. Yeah, I want to say that he'd won one in the late nineties. Yeah, that, no, I think I think you got it right. So yeah, that that would be second. You know, and again, here's here's one of the best superclass racers of all. Actually, one of the best sportsman racers of all time sure. because his work on the bottom bulb is also pretty impressive. Sure. Um, and then if you want to go to Super Gas, Ray Sawyer, you know, you've got a champion out of Division One. He's come close a couple other times. Yeah, he's come you close know, since. Uh, it's hard to believe. I mean, I distinctly remember him winning that championship. It's one of those things, like we had said earlier, it's hard to believe that was 15 years ago. Sure. You know, and obviously his son, Mike, has also come close uh, yes. a couple times. I, I believe he's got at least a couple of second-place finishes, a host of top tens. Um, but, yeah, that, that was a deal. Uh, some other notable things from that year. Uh, you had some doubles. 
Kevin Helms doubled in Denver, uh, which I believe was, I guess that would have been stock and super stock. Uh, Peter Biondo, hey, if you're going to score 792 points, why not throw in a double in Columbus? <laughs> why wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and towards the end of the year, David Rampey had a super stock comp double in Vegas, uh, which, you know, two, two of his, two of his hundred wins came uh, there on the second to the last event uh, of the season. Um, kind of your award for, you know, best supporting actor in a strange role, Brad Plourd borrows John Coughlin's dragster, a car that he's never sat in, goes to Indy, wins the biggest race of the year. And, and, and talking, I just did a feature on Brad for a national dragster, and I had forgotten that he won Memphis prior to that. And, I mean, he was not at that time a guy that raced a lot of super comp. And I believe he said that he and Kyle Rizzoli had swapped cars for Memphis. They, they just, when they went to Anner, said, you know what? I want to race super gas. You can race super comp. So, so here was a guy who in, in basically back-to-back races uh, drove two unfamiliar cars to, to two big national event wins. Mm-hmm. No, and that's the first uh, Indy win for Brad. Mm-hmm. He's got two more since, I believe. He does. In unfamiliar vehicles. The, the second time when he won in stock, uh, it was in a car that he'd never set in prior to right. that event. It was mm-hmm. a DJ Pyre's car. Correct. And then comes back with the win in comp in the, the craziest competition eliminator car. I don't know. There's been some crazy competition eliminator cars, but one of the craziest competition eliminator cars you could hop into. Absolutely. Uh, and the blow and altered, which I, if memory serves, they may have tested once, but I think his first time in competition was at Bowling Green the week prior. So kind of like Hugh Meeks in a way, probably at, at a little bit more nationally known level, like just your Swiss army knife of sports oh. racing drivers, right? Yeah, yeah. A guy who just throughout his career, uh, I mean, I mean, I think we, we came up with, with an easy half dozen or more times where he was, you know, just driving, would jump in a car that he had little or no experience with. Doesn't matter where the controls are, where the switch is, how it stops, how it leaves. You, you make the adjustments and you get it done. And, and I've always marveled at that kind of talent. I know there's a number of people that can do it, but um, I have a hard enough time figuring out one car and, and the, the guy, the guys that can do that, um, just it's almost second nature. There, there's a lot of respect there for those people. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. And he's one of the best. Like I would just off top of mind, if you just had some random car that maybe isn't even the best prepared, and you need somebody to drive it to victory, I think it's Brad Plourd and Scotty Richardson, like the two guys that I would just put in what a wheelbarrow and expect oh, yeah, you, that they would go win. You know, you, you just hand them the keys and say, let me know when you're done. Yeah, um, we, we also had. Uh, the Frank brothers raced in the Superstock final in Sonoma. Uh, certainly a, a career highlight for both of them. Uh, Bill Rose hosted the inaugural sports, the Jags Cajun Sports Nationals. Oh, which the first actually, one. Okay. Yeah, which that, that became a pretty big event for, for a number of years. Um, it was kind of the revival of the Sports Nationals. And to have it down there at that time, you know, you had management at the track that very much wanted it. You've got, got a lot of sportsmen in Division Four. Um those events were very successful and uh, it's great to see that the sports nationals was revived. And even though it's moved around a bunch since it, it's still going strong. Um, and then, you know, again, the bottom of our list, we had uh, Pete Pete's season included five national event wins, including Indy. So, so he had two national event wins that didn't even count. Uh, right. As part, <laughs> of the, as part of the highest score in history. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it's, it's not inconceivable that if you didn't have, 
the, the parameters of the point system that Pete racked up a thousand points or more total. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I'll uh, I'll switch gears to the the IHRA scene because I don't think I raced much IHRA that season, but I followed it because uh, again that was the the year that I worked at Huntsville Engine and we actually were involved in the motor that went to like the Super Series champion. So I remember going to the banquet that year, which was unforgettable for other reasons that I'll get to in just a second. Um, but quickly running through the IHRA champions from the year, uh, Jamie Silence won the top sportsman championship. I thought it was notable and relevant now. Sandy Wilkins finished second that year and mm-hmm. one of what seems like half a dozen or more near misses between sure. the IHRA and NHRA before he finally got over the hump, so to speak, and won uh, the NHRA championship in 2019. Um, Jason Folk was your top dragster world champion that year, which goes into why the uh, the banquet was so memorable. Jason <laughs> Folk won, and Troy Williams Jr. also won the championship in quick rod. And if you're familiar with those two guys, championship night at the banquet, yeah, that's uh, that was a scene. That was a scene that I'll, that I'll not soon forget. It was a good time. I, I can only imagine. I, I... <laughs> uh, Super stock champion that year was Scotty Stillings. Um, it's one of the rare seasons that you look back on and not see an Anthony Bertozzi IHRA World Championship. I don't know mm-hmm. what happened to Anthony that year. He finished third in uh, in Superstock and I think was up in top dragster as well, top 10. Uh, but Stillings Championship, I believe, was his first non-890 World Championship. He won two or three in a row in 890 years prior, Superstock champ in 2005. Chris Jackson was a name from the past for me, uh, winner in Stock Eliminator, world champion in IHRA that year, over Jeremy Mitchell, who was driving for um, Scotty Stillings at the time, and the late, great Jim Harrington. As I mentioned, TWJ, Troy Williams Jr., quick crowd world champion. In the 990 IHRA class, it was Bernard Weaver, and Keith Myers was your uh, hot rod world champion in uh, IHRA, which was the, the 1090 Super Street class of the day. Sure. And, and, and the Bernard Weaver championship is interesting because that is a car that I have known. I mean, he's been racing that Dodge Daytona since I'm going to guess mid eighties. Uh, I mean, that, that might be one of the oldest, I mean, I'm sure it's been updated from time to time, but that might be one of the oldest super gas cars uh, to, to ever win a championship. Yeah. No, cool car. Cool guy. Yes. Um, all right. So switch gears a, a little bit more to my wheelhouse from the day, just because this is, what I was doing uh, to the big dollar bracket scene in 2005. And that was the year that my man, Jeff Rooks won the biggest race of the season. It was uh, his million dollar race victory at Memphis that year, defeated Robbie Mays in the final. Um, And then I think obviously that puts anybody on the map. Jeff's no different, but I think what really solidified him in terms of, lore the greatness the the history of that event was actually coming back the following year where he was runner-up to greg sesti in 2006 mm-hmm. back-to-back million dollar race finals right. Right. uh pretty crazy accomplishment sure and i and i do remember that and, and if i'm not mistaken wasn't robbie mays a, a teenager at that point maybe 19 maybe 20 at, at the oldest i would think no you're thinking of of rustin robbie was oh, okay. the father that oh, was okay. at the same time like they had really just burst onto the scene um, at least nationally. Like I remember running, running with Robbie's brother growing up around Kennedale. Um, but I don't think that Robbie and Rustin even really got involved in competition until maybe a year or two prior to that and just went out and set the world on fire, both of them. Um, the other, and keep back, like 2005, the, the big dollar bracket racing landscape 
it's changed so much. It's really changed so much yeah. in the last five years, but especially mm -hmm. looking back to then, you had the million. Um, this was past the days, there was a few years there where Steve Irwood, Irwood put on the Millennium Million at Rockingham, but that was since uh, defunct. This was before the flings got started up. Like the million was a standalone event. It was by far the biggest event of the year. The winter series was still going on. Um, but it was starting to trail off, right? Starting absolutely, to absolutely. Um, the B and M series. I believe that 2005 was the twilight for the B and M series. I couldn't find confirmation on that, right, right. Mm -hmm. but I'm almost certain that that's the year that it finally. And same deal. It had been dwindling for a couple of years. It was at one time the national, you know, bracket series and right. and, and the first of its kind. 2005 also marked kind of the changing of the guard there as B&M series was dwindling down. You had Danny Sons with the DragRaceResults.com uh, BTE series, I believe at the time, right. really starting up. And I think that was the first time that they crowned a national champion, which surprise of surprises was <laughs> Scotty Richardson. <laughs> That's pretty, for bracket racing trivia, you just it's like New York Yankees. If you just, if you don't know the answer, you just throw out Scotty Richardson and about 75, 80% of the time you're going to be correct. Yeah. If they give you three choices, just pick Scotty, Troy Williams Jr. And Underwood, like odds are you're going to hit it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Scotty was the, the super pro champion in, uh, in that, which I believe was the first year a national champion was crowned in the BT series. Phil Combs was champion on the bottom ball. Uh, that was probably the series that I called home more than any that year. So I got mm -hmm. to see domination on both ends there. I've got some funny Phil Combs stories from that year that I've shared on the podcast before. We, we did not, we, di we didn't get along at that time. And, and there, there's been a, there's been a tremendous mutual respect since we'll just say that. Uh, yeah. It, fun, fun times, no doubt. Um, the, the, I guess the marquee event outside of the million single race at that time um, I think the only 50 grander on the schedule in 2005, I may stand corrected there, but I think the only one was um, the Mid-Michigan, the, the, the World Super Pro Challenge that's mm -hmm. been ongoing for what, 30 plus years now. Um, and that year, the winner was Lane Dickin. Mm -hmm. And I actually, funny story from, from that event, because we'll take this back. Um, I, I'd mentioned that this was the year that I, I really got in close and, and started running around with Jason Lynch. And you had mentioned earlier that that's the season that um, that Bullet Motorsports kind of disbanded with Zerilla. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually created an opportunity for Jason. That's he, sure. he and he and Zerilla buddied up at that point, and he kind of got what was left and started trying to make sense of it. So we're at, and I actually just saw a quote here. Um, Josh Baker was the the Drag Race Results champ the year before. Okay. Five was actually the second year. I do remember that now. So shouts to Josh. Um, but that year we were, I remember for whatever reason, I don't remember what the race was. We were at South Georgia, um, a week or two prior to the 50 at Michigan. And again, I just had my Vega and, uh, Jason, I think one in a, in a blue undercover dragster that was just ridiculous good. Like it ran the same thing for three days. And, uh, he comes down and he says, Hey man, are you going to Michigan? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not taking my bag up there. I don't have the money to go, this, that, and the other. Come to Michigan. You can drive this. I've got a new car. i got to go up to Zerillas and get it. I'm going to drive it. You can drive this. It's really good. And I'd watched it for three days. be unbelievable. I'm like, well, yeah, like I'll take you up on that. So the new car was a car that Dave Connolly had had purpose-built. It was a, it was a four-link dragster, but with pro-stock technology. Like it had adjustable four-link brackets. It, had, it, it was really, really trick. And um, so I if memory serves, we went to Zerilla's shop and put a motor in to go to the 50. And so Jason's 
abandoning the seat of a car that's probably the best car at the racetrack that he won in the week before. He's like, you drive that. I'm going to figure this one out, right? <laughs> and this is my indoctrination to Jason Lynch. And there's kind of there's, – there's the flip side of this, and this is how Lynch operates. But literally – so the way that the, the Stanton 50 had always worked, and I believe still works, five grander Thursday, 10 grander Friday, and then the 50 Saturday with, the, with the, another five grander on Sunday. It was literally, the 50 is day three, and it was like sixth round of the 50 that before Jason made back-to-back -back runs with the same carburetor and torque converter in that car. <laughs> we changed something every single run and not something minor. Like I think it was in the 50, maybe between second and third round, we went from gas to alcohol and then switched back <laughs> the next round. Right. And it goes like, that's, that is part of that. I guess is if Jason's got like a fatal flaw is like, he will work himself into an unbelievable combination and work his way right back out. Like he just never stops. Right. Sure, sure. But I think, especially at that point in my career, what it, what it, did for me is realize like this is the type of effort and the work ethic that goes into the kind of success that Jason has you know what I mean it was a real sure. eye-opener for me um, and it was just so amazing because like that's before data acquisition any of that like Jason's just coming back from a run and just on field he's like ah that's too tight we're gonna change that converter again <laughs> okay you know but I literally remember it's going for sixth round of the 50 and I mean I am covered in grease and sweat and just been working all day on this thing and uh, I leaned down in the car about out of breath greasy nasty I said hey man there's only like 12 cars left and you know what you got a shot to win and he looks at me like yeah like I'm course I got a shot to win. I'm Jason Lynch, right? And he's just with this bewildered look on his face. I go, no, man, you got a chance because we ain't going to have time to change anything for next round. And hell, this thing might be good. Right. I just walked off. <laughs> so talk about a guy that was born for comp eliminator, right? I think yes. he's, oh, he's calling. Missed his calling. Yeah. <laughs> and some of that's like his, his class racing background. You know, his, his father was a super stock racer for years. Sure. So that's where some of that tinker comes from. But there's just He's never satisfied, never satisfied. So, so, so I see that Troy Williams Jr. Is, is on here watching. Maybe he'd like to chime in with some stories of the IHRA banquet that year. <laughs> what, what do you remember? <laughs> not much. If I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say not much. Uh, <laughs> you just tell him what he missed. <laughs> um, you had some notes from Moroso, which I think is always cool, something that you always covered in National Dragster. Um, John LaBoost Jr. was the five-day points champion. I believe that mm -hmm. was probably his first points I, championship in a row, so I may be wrong there. I, no, I, I believe so. And as near as I could tell, um, don't quote me a thousand percent on this, but I believe it was shortened to three days by rain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not, not an uncommon event down there, but um, I know John LaBoost won a day, Steve Dweck won a race, and Oh, you know what? If scoring 792 points, winning five national events, winning the U.S. Nationals wasn't enough, what do you do to cap it off if you're Peter Biondo? You go to Moroso, you win a day. Yeah, might as well hop in a dry extra. He could yeah. do that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, why not end the year with another $7,500? Uh, kind of a precursor, I think, of things to come. Sean Langdon was uh, make, making a name for himself a little bit on the West Coast at that time. Mm -hmm. This is two years three years prior, two years prior to his first NHRA sure. Super Comp World Championship. Uh, he won the overall points total at the Vegas Thanksgiving race, which in that day and age was definitely the biggest bracket race on in that part of the country. Yeah, that was when, uh, you know, uh, you were just starting to see some of the high dollar events come out West. You know, G George Howard had tried it. 
Uh, he went to Tucson with an event that was moderately successful, tried it a couple times, but then, you know, once they got to Vegas, you know, you, you had a couple of $5,000 and then they also had the ultimate gamblers race, which was, uh, you know, a big deal for a while for, for the guys that could pony up a, a, a big entry fee. I mean, it was, a, was it 500 initially and then it went to a thousand to enter with, I think a 64 car field capped. Um, so yeah, so, so, um, you know, but again, Sean won the overall points that year. And then if you want to go back to Florida, uh, Bradenton, you know, you still had their, their four and five day events. So they had a four day that year. Um, you know, Scotty Richardson, Danny Nelson, John Bowes and Steve Cohen. So, you know, heard you, of them. yeah, here's your, another all-star roster that, uh, um, takes home the big checks to end the year. And that's the way that the winter series was like for the longest time growing up, I, I I know that there were years where they got three, 400 cars. Mm-hmm. But it feels like in that day and age, and especially like, it makes sense. You extend things to quarter mile. Um, like the, the, the drivers, the cream tends to rise to the top mm-hmm. in that atmosphere. And I think even in that day, you could take out, I don't know, like 25, 30 entrants sure. from that three, 400 mm-hmm. and, and probably get three of the four days winners. Yeah. Three yeah. Five. yeah. yeah. And there were the early days of Moroso. It started out, the first couple of years, you know, 200 cars, then 300. Once it hit 400, it became unmanageable. And, and I know one year about eh, maybe 1987, 88, 89, they, they did a pre-entry. And, and, and that was a cluster because, you know, you had guys that this was their whole year to go down there and to think that they wouldn't, you know, that you wouldn't be able to race was really a, you know, a, a bad thing. For, and, you know, unfortunately it got to the point where, car counts kind of leveled off and uh, you know, you, you had some prime years there in the nineties where it stayed in the four hundreds where that was a manageable number, but you still had a lot of late nights and early mornings there. Um, and then I, I thought I'd close this out. We mentioned this just kind of in passing on uh, the podcast that you were on, where we were talking about the best individual seasons in sports from drag racing history. And I mentioned there was a year, I couldn't remember the year at the time, but Rick Bear went on this crazy run. So I actually found some of the, the actual data from this in the time. And it's, it's even more ridiculous than I remembered. So this was at the end of 2005. Uh, well, I guess prior to that mid-season, Rick Bear, obviously most of you know him as a noted bottom ball racer. This was the year that he really like, he went nationwide. Everybody started to know his name. Um, over that summer, he won the $15,000 no-box classic or whatever they called it at Stanton, Michigan, right? One of the biggest no-box races in the country uh, and specific to that area. As the season winds to a close, this is when the IHRA, I think it was called the Summit Super Series still at that point or some iteration of that, uh, in which you had to win your local track championship. I actually, I don't even think it was to that iteration yet. They took the top eight points earners from throughout the year and ran off for a huge prize like it it, rick's actual prize was like valued at fifty thousand dollars right i think there's a trailer involved there's a trip to somewhere like i believe it was aruba Aruba, right yep yep so you've got this huge prize package for it so he wins the the summit super series portion at norwalk to earn a berth in this eight car runoff which is at rockingham right um, for a shot at this huge prize pool. Well, at the same time, he obviously does well enough at Norwalk to qualify for the chassis chase, 
which is one of their year-end bonus programs. Well, that event just would have been contested like two weeks prior to Rockingham. Well, it rained out and it gets pushed back to the same weekend. And now they're going to contest that at the Halloween Classic, which is the same weekend as, as Rockingham. Sure. So you've just got a logistical issue because I think it's like 12 hours from Norwalk to Rockingham, right? So I don't know. Bader probably worked with them to make this possible. I don't know if the, the chassis chase would have been Friday night regardless, but anyway, that's going to be Friday night. So Rick starts that event, the Halloween Classic, on Thursday with a win in a uh, Mosier shootout, which is another like year end qualification. Mm -hmm. I believe it was 16 cars. He's in it off the bottom against no box cars. He rolls through that, gets the win. Also that night, they have 128 car capped because the Halloween classic is nuts and there's probably 900 cars on the grounds. No box race. Rick wins that. Okay, so he's 11 and 0 on Thursday. Friday is the chassis chase. He wins that. 16 car runoff for a new turnkey race tech dragster. So like $50,000 value, give or take. Right. And I look at it like I found the actual run in the final, his opponent in the final off the bottom. I think it was eighth mile for whatever reason is 13 total. He lost. Rick gets the win there by a thousandth. Right. Packs up then after going undefeated at Norwalk, what like 15 rounds against, you know, arguably like the, as tough a competition as you're going to find anywhere at the Colony mm -hmm. classic packs up, drives all night to Rockingham for the runoff gets one time trial I assume Saturday afternoon for the runoff on Sunday where he goes through three more rounds to win the IHRA world championship in our, what's undoubtedly like the the highest stakes of his career probably not only to that point but since sure. right in one weekend he goes undefeated 18 and 0 on the weekend to literally claim nearly six figures in cash and prizes and I thought what was most impressive looking back through the release on it in the two big events, at least, right. The, to win the chassis chase at Norwalk and to win the world championship at Rockingham, that's uh, seven rounds, his worst light off the bottom 17, which was in the final for the world championship, just a ridiculous string of what, four days, right? So it's at 90, 96 hours. Yeah. And, and I know almost every, successful racer has a weekend like that where you're just on and everything's clicking but you know a typical double at an nhra national event might be 14 rounds max to, to, to do 18 rounds different disciplines different tracks that's that elevates that to a whole nother level especially when the stakes are that high and then like you say the 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 traverse the travel in between and i don't know like if most competitors would think like i would but especially if i left norwalk i'm like man that was awesome but like what are the odds you know what yeah. i mean like this yeah. has got to catch up with me like yeah you start, you, you start yeah. to think of the, the things that could go wrong <laughs> right. right all the is my car gonna run the same you know i mean you're talking about two totally different tracks in different parts of the country I would imagine he probably got little to no uh, time trials, not a lot of data to work with, as opposed to the guys that might have been there all week. Right. Uh, yeah, you, little you're, to you're, no sleep, right? That too. You're, you're, you're climbing a pretty tall mountain there. Yeah, impressive stuff. So I think uh, I think that I, I think Pete's season is probably the story of the year, but I think Rick Bear's performance there is is a close second. And you just uh, yeah. This was a lot of fun, man, like going through the, the season on, on so many different levels, the year as a whole, and specifically the, the season in sports and race. And I wonder if Pete keeps records. I would probably have to send him a note and see if he has logbooks or anything to see what 
the entirety of his year was. I, I, it would be awesome if he had every time slip and whether it was a weekly bracket race, you know, a $2,000 to win race here to see what his win percentage was for that whole season. It was probably ungodly. I, you I, got to figure just the seven wins alone is there's six or seven races. It's probably 45, 46 and oh. You know? I mean, you got to lose a lot of races to make that not look like un, un, yeah. unreal, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, what did he do? You know, when he went down there, and, and you know, he, he won a day in Morosa. I'd like to know what did he do the other two? Who who got him? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, just insane. Cool stuff. That's fun to look back on, uh, Kevin. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all the research uh, that you put into this. This could not have been near as much fun without uh, without your contribution. Well, uh, th thank you, and and I find myself with a lot of extra time these days. So. Uh, so if, um, I don't know if you want to come back and do 2006 or if you'd like to hop around, I'm, I'm down for, for whatever. Um, and yeah, ho hopefully the people watching enjoyed it as much as we have and let, let's do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. We've gotten some positive comments on this already, but again, like uh, viewers and listeners, let us know, like, uh, do you like this format? What would you like to see tweaked? Um, I, I love kind of going back and not to say that 2005, at least for me, it doesn't feel like the Wayback Machine, but I like just kind of traversing time and talking about this as if it was today because it brings up so many cool moments and so many cool memories. Sure. And the good thing is it's not so far back that, um, you know, a, a lot of people that were active in 2005 are still active. So, so it, it's all relevant to people that we know today. And it's fun to see how far some of these people have come that maybe, you know, that were at the start of their career then to see how much they've accomplished in the, uh, in the 15 years that have come by since. So. Good stuff. All right. Good deal. Well, we're going to put this up on the podcast feed. So if you tuned up or tuned in midway through this on Facebook and you want to go back, obviously I think you can replay it right on the Facebook page. If you want the audio version, if that's easier to digest, we'll have it up on the sports and drag racing podcast feed as soon as possible as well. Kevin, thank you again. Let's plan on coming back and doing this again next week. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's do it. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.